Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. Now for anyone out there listening who is going through a breakup or has recently been rejected in love and is feeling... You know, just lingering feelings for a certain someone out there. I have a wonderful, consoling piece of not really advice. It's more just just a fact for you to to hang on tightly and fall asleep next to you every night as you go through this emotional journey. I'm ready, Kristen. It is all in your brain. Everything that you're feeling, all of that, all of that love lost, just that horrible state where you don't want to sleep, you don't want to eat, you're trying not to text, you're like checking their Facebook obsessively to see if someone, you know, might have written something suggestive on their wall. All of it. We've all done it before. Here's the thing, people. You're not crazy. It's just your brain going nuts. And I find that to be quite reassuring. I do, too. We're going to talk about this study that came out just a few weeks ago. It was led up by Helen Fisher, who we talked about on the Why Does the Sizzle Fizzle podcast. Mm -hmm. And she worked with uh, researchers named Lucy Brown, Arthur Aaron, Greg Strong, and Deborah Mashik. And the study is called Reward, Addiction, and Emotion Regulation Systems Associated with Rejection and Love. But if I could suggest an alternate title, Mm -hmm. I would suggest something like... If you're broken up, read this. It will make you feel a lot better. Yes. Because, (laughs) yes, as Kristen says, it's all in your brain. And that's so helpful because it's out of your control for reasons we're going to discuss. But you know how, like, you know, the the deepest, darkest moments, and it seems like they're never going to end. This study just shows how it's not in your control. It's there are no rules to a breakup. Yeah. Or just, or just being rejected. You don't necessarily have to be in a relationship with someone and be broken up with. It could have just been, you know, you've really been, you've been crushing hard on somebody and you finally take it out there and the other person says, ah, thanks, but no thanks. But if you've got that friend who's telling you, oh, you should be over this by now. Oh, you or know. Or is trying to give you some kind of time frame. Yeah. Like this study is so reassuring in the way that it shows you that There is no right or wrong way to go through this. You're just going to have to wait for these crazy neurons in your brain Mm -hmm. to get themselves figured out. And time, the happy ending, I'll go ahead and tell you, is that time does take care of that. Time does heal all wounds. Mm -hmm. That's not really reassuring when you're going through the worst of it. But but this is some kind of explanation for the feelings that you are feeling. And while... Yes. I mean, we cannot, it is very unromantic to sum up our, um, very heart, heartfelt feelings toward other people in terms of different brain regions and neurotransmitters and different aspects of our brain just firing off, um, more, more rapidly than normal. Um, and this is also, I should say, could be considered the companion piece to why does the sizzle fizzle? Um, which I highly recommend you go back to because this is also, this is all dealing with Helen Fisher's work. Helen Fisher is an anthropologist who has studied, 
um, how our brains react to love and what exactly love is and why these kind of strong, driving feelings exist. Because one of the most interesting things that Fisher points out is that romantic love is not actually an emotion when you get down to the physical basis of it. It's actually a goal-oriented motivational state. State. It's a drive. It is a drive. And it is actually stronger than our sex drive. Because if you think about it, you know, if you are denied just simply sex, like it's a lot easier to sometimes go without sex and be told no just for the physical act of that rather than being rejected in terms of, you know, a love partner, if you will. And Fisher also points out that its basis is in mammalian species, not just in human behavior. Yeah, she likens it to a puppy that's been separated from a mother in Mm -hmm. the terms of how it behaves. And, you know, it might sound, as Kristen said, depressing to think that it's a drive rather than an emotion love. But she points out, you know, it's easier to stop being angry than it is to stop being in love. So it really is this all-powerful drive. So what happens when that drive is thwarted, when the person that you care about most doesn't care about you back That's where we're going to get into this study that we both have just spent five minutes talking about how much we love. Let's share our (laughs) share our love with everyone. Yeah, because I think it's always you know it's great to have um, some kind of uh, neurological explanation to very inexplicable emotionally driven behaviors. Right. So what happened with this study is that on the college campus they put up these posters that said. Are you having trouble getting over someone? If so, call us. Yeah. Have you been rejected in love? And people responded and they got 10 women and five men who had been rejected by a partner. They relationships had been of differing lengths. One relationship had lasted as long as four years. Mm-hmm. But I think two years was about average. The average age was about 19 because this was a college setting. Um, and the breakup time really varied. Some people had just been dumped. Some people had been, you know, dealing with this for a few months. So they they have these people at sort of varying levels of rejection, but all of them said that they were exhibiting sort of these worst, worst case scenarios of the obsessive emailing, the obsessive yeah. Internet stalking. And these participants were so broken hearted that Helen Fisher actually told one of her fellow researchers, I think she told Lucy Brown this, that um, interviewing these subjects was almost so painful. She wouldn't want to do a study like this before because some of them just broke down because they had to bring in a photograph of their beloved or ex-beloved, if you will. They had to bring a photograph with them and even just looking at the picture drove some of these people to tears. Yeah, I mean, when you are when you have been rejected, you are a raw wound. You it's know? awful. You yeah. are just gaping emotion, and sometimes it it it, it uh, swings from you know the happiness of remembering the idealized times mm-hmm. when you're just like, but everything was so perfect. To the anger. Of course, we should get back together. Everything was great. To the absolute anger of that moment of betrayal of someone yeah. cheated on you of that. Break up. If you didn't get an honest answer, you know, we have this sense of closure and, mm-hmm. you know, talking about, oh, I didn't have closure. So you can just go from one extreme to the other in five minutes. And that's what these people were like. And, you know, as Kristen said, it was kind of overwhelming, but as, but they brought up the picture yeah. of their beloved. And they brought in a picture of a person who they felt absolutely nothing about. Yeah, like someone who was had a significant, you know, like connection in their life, but wasn't there wasn't that love connection. Yeah, in fact, they it was sort of people they found boring because you they didn't want friends who might have had like really positive emotions mm-hmm. associated with them. They got people who were sort of boring, 
And uh, they put them into an MRI machine and and uh, they had to perform certain tasks while they were in the MRI machine. First, what they would do, they'd look at the picture of the beloved. And as Kristen said, people would start to cry. Uh, people would start yelling and get really angry because while they were doing this, they were told to reminisce about different experiences in the mm-hmm. relationship. So they're thinking about either the things that made them happiest, the things that made them angriest. And then while still looking at um, the picture, they would have to count backwards by sevens from 8,211. <laughs> and they did that to distract themselves. Yeah. And they found that 40 seconds is like the optimal time to distract yourself. So I say that's a side tip. Mm-hmm. If you get really, if you're like at work and you're just like, I can't focus, I've been broken up. Stop and take 40 seconds and yeah. count backwards from seven from some random number because distracting your brain will work. Mm-hmm. Then they would spend another minute looking at the picture of the person they didn't care about. And then they'd spend another time doing the countdown tasks. And so then what they had, the researchers, was a bunch of brain scans from when the person was really sort of riled up about this situation versus times when they were much more, uh, you know, bored or just complacent mm-hmm. or working on counting. It's sort of the baseline brain picture. And these were the five main regions that really went haywire when they saw the photograph of the person that they still loved. Number one, we've got the ventral tegmental area, the VTA, if you will. And this is in the midbrain. And this is linked a lot to motivation and reward. And this concept of motivation and reward is going to come up a lot when we talk about romantic love. Because when it comes to, like we said earlier, um, early stage romantic love in particular is a goal-oriented motivational state where it drives you. So, you know, that's the reason why, you know, when you first fall in love with someone, that's all you can think about. You can skip meals, you can skip work, you can do whatever because there is just one thing on your mind compelling you to breathe from minute to minute. So after the VTA, we also have the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex. And these activated areas bring up the similarity similarity between love and addiction because Helen Fisher continually compares the brain pathways of love to the same pathways that are ignited when you have a cocaine addiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we talked about this in Sizzle Fizzle is that, you know, when you just can't do anything because you're thinking about someone so much, it's the yeah. same sort of feeling you might have if you were addicted to drugs. And when you get a little bit of it, it takes you up. And when you're taken away from it, you go through withdrawal. Samesies. I mean, there should there. be like love rehab. Yeah. And I guess that you can make the argument. This is a totally different podcast. But if you uh, have replaced one addiction with another at the bottom of it may be the fact that you were rejecting a love. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to go there yet. Another theory for another time. And then we also have areas in our forebrain that deal specifically with processing gains and losses and also the anticipation of a gain. Because here's the interesting thing that I was surprised to find in this study. Adversity in love, all right, tends to actually heighten your feelings of romantic love. And uh, Fisher has this hypothesis that re- rejection actually activates your reward systems that mediate emotion and reward. And when that reward is delayed, i.e., like you have been rejected, then those reward-expecting neurons in your brain actually keep going longer because they... um 
And they're, get their payoff. They're, yeah, they, they're, they're waiting, they're waiting to get, uh, some kind of satisfaction, but it's not coming because you've been rejected. So it just kind of sends that part of your brain into overdrive. Which I think is why people get so hung up on fantasizing the way they will get back together. Oh, yeah. I know that I'm very how guilty you, of that. Of yeah, like, how you can win a person back. I can win a person back, but just like exactly what they're going to say when they come back and beg your, for your forgiveness. That's not you just being like insane. That's your reward centers. Going insane Those are for themselves. Reward expecting neurons. People <laughs> probably think we're crazy by now, but I think it's interesting. Uh, then we also have our autonomous, uh, nervous system and the insular cortex, which really is linked to the intense emotionality surrounding all this. This is why we can daydream about these people day in and day out. And then finally, um, the insular cortex is also linked to the emotional pain. Cause let's face it, this stuff is painful. Yeah. And it feels like it's, painful in your very body like you know heartache is called heartache for a reason because it can hurt yeah and i think that that really shows how the the brain the mind body connection when that part of your brain is firing it is going to affect you sometimes you get a flu like right after you've been dumped because your body is in such a compromised position all because of the stupid brain right the in in response to to extreme breakups people's bodies will actually release cortisol which stimulates the immune system to prepare for some kind of kind of sickness. I mean, love sickness ain't no joke. Yeah, I mean, all these things that have been put into to songs and movies, it all goes back to the brain. So let's talk about, we talked a little bit about it, but let's go into a little bit deeper of why it matters that these areas were lit up when these people were thinking about their exes. Because what was surprising to me is so many of them, I mean, the people admitted, I'm still in love with this person. They rejected me, but I'm still in love. And uh, so many of the same brain areas that have been scanned and people who are in love lit up. And it's funny how um, that's why it can be so hard to get over someone because that part of your brain doesn't stop firing for a long time. And as Kristen said, it's being, that firing is being made more intense by the fact that you can't satisfy this drive. Mm-hmm. You can't get what you want. You're not getting that reward. You're not getting uh, this drive for companionship and love met. And that explains why the major difference in, in brain activity between the rejected lovers and the brains of people who are also happily in love, because Fisher has done plenty of FR- fMRI studies also on people who report being completely in love, mutually in love with uh, with their partners. And the rejected lovers show significantly greater activity in the areas of the brain that are related to, you know, love as an addiction and also the motivation and reward. So it's like those kind of those parts are going into overdrive where those reward expecting neurons are firing. They're waiting for their satisfaction and also kind of the the uh, addictive aspect of the brain um, is is going into overdrive as well, kind of creating those feelings of withdrawal, if you will. And, I, you know, I've heard myself say it a bunch of times, like, how can I still feel this way about a person when they've done me so wrong, mm-hmm. to borrow a term? But it's because, as we said, this adversity heightens all that love. It's almost like you love someone more after they're awful to you because of the way the brain is acting now. But I think that the cocaine thing, like not to dwell on it, but it's important to know that just as you wouldn't say to a person who was an addict, like, oh, it's been two weeks. You shouldn't really still be craving cocaine. Yeah. You would never say that to a person. No. That's why you can't say it to someone who's going through a breakup because it's the same thing. Yeah, it takes time. But the good news from all of this is that over time, these areas of the brain chill out. Yeah. 
And it's probably why rebounds are so common. Because I'm sure once you know, I'm just kind of uh, going off on my own scientific hypothesis. This here. is not a Helen Fisher. Thought. This is not a Helen Fisher thought. This is Kristen Conger, <laughs> PhD. Um, I'm guessing that rebounds are so common because it sort of replaces, it satisfies, if you will, those reward expecting neurons. If mm-hmm. only for a night or a week or a month or whatever. Um, it's like you're, you're. I think that some people have like that just neurological drive to satisfy it in some way. Yeah. Um, but as time went on, the people who, you know, the people who had been broken up the longest in this study did have less intense firing of the most mm-hmm. central areas related to love and related to addiction as time went on. So that's why I think it's important not to put a time limit on yourself um, because it's going to happen when it's going to happen. Eventually your brain is going to realize, oh, this isn't the reward anymore. It'll chill out and life will go on. And one thing I found uh, Helen Fisher said was that you shouldn't even be friends with an ex for three years because that's how long it may take to get your brain back to normal. Helen, Helen Fisher, that's a long time. I, I'm going to stand with Helen Fisher on this. Yeah, she doesn't seem to know what she's talking about. But I, for anyone out there who's asking themselves, why are Molly and Kristen talking about the brain right now. I mean, it's your, it's your heart and it hurts and it's just, you know, it takes time for this emotional wound to heal. Well, I, we, we bring this up because in some of these cases, some of the participants who in this study, uh, reported that once they knew what the study was about and were aware of these connections between their brain and emotions, came back to the researchers and said, hey, I got to tell you, ever since kind of putting the, the, the pieces together between how my brain is reacting and the, you know, the emotional behaviors that it's producing, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. But it kind of gives you a little more agency mm-hmm. in this situation, if you will. And also they were saying that some of these students were already just by the very process of going under these brain scans were undergoing, quote unquote, reappraisal success, which is basically when they remember the not so great aspects of the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone from a self-help guru to Helen Fisher is going to tell you that part of that reappraisal that your brain keeps making you do is looking for lessons. Mm-hmm. And they say that the people who can find those lessons are the ones who are going to, you know, for, I guess for lack of a better term, recover better. Um, not that I think that there's any sort of gold standard and breakup recovery, but uh, part of that reappraisal is figuring out, you know, why this happened, but just, you know, learning a lesson about yourself. Yeah. And if it helps at all, here's the thing. Everybody goes through this. There was a large-scale study of um, college students at Case Western Reserve that's referenced a lot in a lot of these um, similar types of studies on rejection and love. 93% of both sexes reported that they had been rejected by someone that they adored. And 95% also said that they had rejected someone who was deeply in love with them. So, Jerks. Yeah. No, but that's, but listen to that though. 90, more people had done the rejecting and had right. been rejected. So, and of course, you know, the, the trite thing to say is that the person who would reject you is not the person you want to be with anyway. So it would happen for a reason. It's, it's better just to deal with the pain now than to deal with something that might have happened down the line. But um, I think that also it's important to to note that you can distract yourself. You can metaphorically count back from seven 
every time you need to think about that? Well, first, I think it, it is important to acknowledge, and, uh, and Fisher underscores this a lot, is that rejected lovers do go through two distinct phases that starts with protest, saying, oh, my God, don't leave. These are the ten ways I'm going to get this person back. And then despair when you kind of accept the fact that, okay, you're not coming back and I'm going to be lonely for the rest of my life. And dear I'm going God, to sit here me. and cry. And you know, what was interesting is that she posits that there might have been an evolutionary reason for this. Like, let's we we talked about that puppy before. Mm-hmm. If the puppy's been separated from its mother and it gets so depressed that it just can't move, that it's just in this like pile on the floor whimpering. That the fact that, you know, this depression is set in might be an evolutionary advantage because it keeps the puppy still so that if the mother wants to come back and find it, oh. it can. And, uh, you know, because Fisher says, why would our bodies put us through so much pain? Why would this um, response to this have developed if uh, there wasn't a reason for it? So it's possible that, you know. You're kind of conserving your energy for the next big adventure in your life. Because that is one interesting thing that um, that she points out in some of her research is that they haven't exactly pinpointed whether or not all of these love responses, this um, this motivational drive that we are born with is adaptive or maladaptive, whether or not it's something that really helps us along the way or hurts us. But the fact that it has persisted for so long, not only in our species, but also to different extents in other species indicates that there is a reason, you know, there is a method behind all of this madness. And the one thing I do want to say while we're kind of pinpointing the fact that, you know, a lot of the crazy things we do when we're dealing with breakups can be sort of directed back to the brain. There are people who go through legitimate bouts of depression. And again, Helen Fisher points out that this might be more of a helpful thing than a hurtful thing, because if it's if it gets bad enough, maybe that's what will help you seek treatment for it. Mm -hmm. So that was another example she gave of, you know, while we're kind of saying that, you know, the obsessive Facebook stalking or Internet stalking has a brain you know, rationale, I guess not depression. Depression never has a rationale. It should always be treated and you should always seek treatment for something that is upsetting you this much. And on the flip side of this, while, you know, some people might become really just depressed and completely heartbroken over this, at some point, other people might just develop an intense anger towards the person who has rejected them or broken up with them. And Helen Fisher points out that it makes sense that there seems to be this fine line between love and hate, if you will, because the primary rage system in our brain is very close to the reward system in our prefrontal cortex. So while we have these reward expecting neurons that are waiting, waiting around, you know, after you get rejected, waiting around to be um, fulfilled, that can also set off that that rage system as well and send you, you know, just going nuts over, you know, why this person, how dare they do this to you? Right. And she has a line that my mother has also said. One thing my mother did tell me to reference the title of the podcast (laughs) is that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Because when those things are so connected, when you say, oh, I hate them, that means you still have feelings about them. Absolutely. And what you're going for is indifference. But I will say, whenever I get really angry, and this goes whether it's work or love or anything else, uh, two of the best uh, breakup coping mechanisms, you'll see them recommended across the board. Are Ice just- cream and chocolate. <laughs> 
I was going to say exercise <laughs> because you're using all that excess energy that your anger gives you. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, like, just go running. I, I have run, I have run down some breakups. Not I, gonna lie. I am not a runner, but a breakup will make me run. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you'll see that everywhere. Just taking care of yourself, you know, allowing yourself the ice cream and chocolate, but also uh, taking care of yourself from a healthy perspective too is, is vital. Yeah, because there are, um, there are plenty of ways to kind of enhance yourself through this. There was one tip that we saw that said, Hey, recognize the, the amount of time that you now have freed up to spend on yourself. Now, when you're in the pits, that's the last thing you want to hear. You don't want free time. You want time with someone else. But, you know, if you, if you can try to channel that space into something creative, into, uh, exercising, into taking care of yourself and also giving yourself the space to, to feel the way you feel. I mean, yes. It could just be more time to watch TV. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. I mean, part of it is distraction. Part of it is counting back from seven over mm-hmm. and over again, day by day until you don't think about them anymore. Right. Because there's going to be a point when you wake up and you realize, Oh my God, I haven't thought about so-and-so in a while. And that's just that you just have to give that brain time to run out the clock, mm-hmm. like the end of a basketball game. And sometimes it takes our brain not so long, and other times it takes our brain months and months and months. And there's always, you know, and, and, and with certain people, there's always going to be some kind of emotional connection. So... So that was um, our take on the Helen Fisher study. And as you probably can tell, we love it and feel that it has completely justified every breakup we've ever had. Well, yeah, and it's just kind of fascinating for us. We like, we like to dork out on things like this. So dork out with us and send us your stories of love and loss. <laughs> If you want, um, and maybe it'll help. Maybe if you've just been a break, been, been through a breakup, you know, just expressing that yeah. can can help start the healing process. So pretend you're in the MRI machine with Helen Fisher. Let us be your MRI machine. Um, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Molly, I think we have time for a couple couple stories right now. Alrighty. I've got an email from Allison. It's about the Gorilla Girl Women in Art podcast we did. Mm-hmm. She writes, here's 10 women artists because we issued that challenge. Kiki Smith, Louise Bourgeois, Nancy Sparrow, Barbara Kruger, Pasita Abad, Ursula von Reidingsvard, Tara Donovan, Mia Perlman, Jane Antoni, and Yelena James. And I profusely apologize, women artists, if I butcher your name. Just call it an artistic thing. Um, that's me, not Allison writing. Allison writes, I'm an elementary school art teacher and I try very hard to expose my students to women artists as well as other underrepresented artists in the art world like Latino and African American artists. Rembrandt, Van Gogh, and Monet have their place, but there's so much more engaging and exciting work out there. I think it is so important to move beyond the worm canon, worm being white old rich men, and I thank you for this podcast. Now, this is my favorite part of the email. She writes, Kristen, it drives me crazy when people say I am not an artist and then say how they can only draw stick figures. Everyone has artistic and creative potential. And remember that art is not only drawing, it is so much more. Collage, photography, film, performance, painting, printmaking, mixed media, sculpture, found object, the list goes on and on. So everyone out there, I say embrace your creative side. No more stick figure excuses. And thanks to Allison, I will soon be premiering new works by Kristen Conger, <laughs> multimedia stick figures at a gallery near you. 
All right, I've got one here um, from our Title IX podcast, and this comes from Whitney. She says, I'm a female athlete on a men's rowing team and therefore see both sides of the story. In theory, Title IX is an excellent idea and has certainly encouraged tons of women to become involved in collegiate athletics and education. However, you mentioned that men's sports were being harmed by this policy, and 99.9% of the time, it's not football. I know it's up to school's discretion, uh, about which sports are most affected, but it's unfortunate to see programs like men's rowing struggle to stay afloat, huh, nice pun, by having to pay for most everything themselves. Just on the other side of the boathouse, women's teams have to spend their allotted amounts of money by buying excessive amounts of equipment, dinners, team trips, and even girls who join and quickly quit just to receive a scholarship. I'm not saying this practice is sex exclusive, but this is not equal treatment by any means. Even though I'm a female, I was not able to take advantage of any of those things, including a scholarship, just because I chose to join a men's team. Nonetheless, it's been well worth being surrounded by the most passionate and hardworking athletes in my college years. So there you have it. Send us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com, or share your thoughts with so many of us on our Facebook page. You can find that at facebook.com. And then you can also follow our Twitter feed. And finally, you can check out our blog during the week. It's Stuff I've Never Told You. And it's at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?